Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 20 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you take a second and give us a rating in iTunes. So we recently published My New Guide to Computer Security, about which Andrew Cavasso of Juris Page says, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. Find out more and get it at lawyerist.com slash shop. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. Sam, I feel like I haven't seen you forever. We like missed a week on the podcast. You went to Alaska. I went to Arizona. This has been too long. It's like a reunion. I know it. On the podcast is live. <laughs> Does it feel magical? <laughs> totally. Wait, this isn't live, is it? No, I suppose not. Oh, crap. Well, hopefully the magic comes through the time delay. Totally. The magic from my heart. <laughs> so, uh, so this week I want to talk about something, which is... I came across this just crazy quote, and I'm just going to read it. I'm going to stick the links in the show notes, but I'm going to read this little quote. Productivity drops off so much after 55 hours that there's no point in working anymore. That's right. People who work as much as 70 hours or more per week actually get the same amount done as people who work 55 hours. And that kind of... I don't believe it. It kind of blew my mind. I want to see... I mean, I... The, the I've linked to the study and I've linked to the article and that is actually what the numbers say. I actually totally believe it because I'm pretty sure I don't get anything done past like hour 39. What What's interesting though is, uh, so, I mean, everybody should stop working at 55 hours. Don't, don't take up your weekends doing work for your clients. Don't work until 10 o'clock at night. Go home to your families. Have a hobby. Oh. But Sam, you missed the point. Lawyers are not about productivity. They are about just billing the extra hour. That 70th hour is worth precisely one hour more than the 69th, regardless of how productive it actually was. No, f- f- right. So from from the billable perspective, those extra 15 hours, assuming you can bill all of them, that's a lot of money. Damn right. But, but I think what this says is that you aren't delivering any additional value to your clients. You are just spinning your wheels while the clock turns. Wait, are you suggesting that delivering value to clients is the goal? Oh, I wouldn't dare suggest such a thing. Oh, Sam, so naive. <laughs> but I think that if delivering value to clients is a goal, then maybe you should stop working after 55 hours. Does that mean you also have to turn off your email at night? Oh man, we talked about that a few weeks back, maybe a few months back. And Yeah, we did, didn't we? Um, yeah, absolutely. Stop looking at your email. Okay. So don't work more than 55 hours and don't check your email at night. There. We are masters of productivity here. You will be a productive, happy lawyer. I love this. And then you'll probably miss a deadline. Don't blame us. Okay. <laughs> Today, right now, in fact, I'm talking to David Colarusso, a real life legal hacker.
Hi there, David. Hi, Sam. I am here with David Colarusso, of the, who is a data scientist at the Massachusetts... You guys don't call yourselves public defenders, do you? No, we, that's, that's our a non-proper noun, public defenders, but our, we're the Committee for Public Counsel Services. That's right. Well, as is our tradition here, I'll ask you to give your own short bio. And uh, I guess I've just started it for you, but uh, tell us more about yourself. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I, until very recently, I was a staff attorney with the uh, Committee for Public Counsel Services. Um, we provide uh, representation, not only in criminal uh, cases with indigent clients, but anytime there's a liberty interest at stake. So if you have a commitment hearing for mental health um, or forced medication, um, juvenile cases um, where there's a juvenile charge with a crime, or uh, family court matters where there's a uh, DCF is involved. So we're a very big agency um, doing a, a bunch of different things. And uh, my role is now as a data scientist there, which, as I was recently introduced to someone, means I'm an attorney who knows about math and science and stuff. That sounds about right. That's a cool thing to be. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's not bad. It's uh, depending on how you count my third or fourth career. <laughs> I was, uh, used to be a public uh, high school teacher, and then I had a software firm for a little while. Um, and then, of course, I was just recently a trial attorney, and now I'm this. So you are one of the few lawyers who doesn't get to make the joke about, if I was good at math, I wouldn't have become a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, no, that joke, that always that makes me cringe. <laughs> I, gotcha. I, uh, especially as an, as an old science teacher, it, it makes me really sad, actually. Yeah, no, that actually kind of is. And are you also a legal hacker? I am. And so what is that? This is what they, when I when I talked to Aaron about this after I got back from ABA Tech Show and then again after I got back from the um, the Kansas City uh, get together, uh, I we talked about this and he he said, "What is a legal hacker?" And I found myself at a little bit of a loss to explain it. Well, you know, here I think we can fall back on another old joke, which is, you know, you ask uh, three lawyers for an opinion, you'll get five different opinions. Mm -hmm. um, I think you'll probably get the same thing for legal hackers. Um, it's in its broadest sense, I think the important thing is to understand what a hacker is, sort of in the hacker community, whatever that is. And uh, the origins come back from uh, uh, from MIT, um, where you, you might know those those old pranks that mm -hmm. used to take place. You know, uh, you know, put a police car up on the uh, MIT dome with you know donuts for the police and instructions on how to dismantle it afterwards. That was a hack. <laughs> so in some respects, sometimes hacks are are jokes, but really it's just sort of a an ethos and a mindset of solving problems um, in sort of a, with what you got on hand. So just going and, and doing it and figuring out how things work and, and using your knowledge of how things work to, to get to a solution. Hopefully an elegant, uh, although, you know, simple solution using what you got. Yeah, it's like, I guess it's a, a little bit MacGyver, a little bit, um, yes. but it's, it's creative problem solving. Creative problem solving. I would definitely say think MacGyver. That's that's the best yeah. description I can give for her. But and it, and I guess you know, thinking about it, it's not it's not just computers, right? It's not just code. It's often coding, but not always. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of Captain Crunch, who managed to crack the long distance phone system with a whistle that he got out of a box of cereal. Um, yeah. It's not it's not just being able to write code. It's just coming up with creative problems and. So I guess when we when we look at the legal system, what what's a little bit different about legal hacking versus traditional ha traditional hackers? I guess. 
So I think you get sort of um, different people calling themselves, you know, sort of attaching to this uh, in different ways. And you have people who are actually interested in finding technical solutions to legal problems, who are interested in, you know, sort of getting their hands dirty, doing some coding. But then you have people who are very happy to call themselves legal hackers who have no coding experience, who are maybe attorneys um, or people who are looking to try to find uh, solutions to problems that might not be technical. You know, sometimes rules and laws are solutions to problems. Well, I suppose if you look at law as code, which is a way to look at it, then finding creative solutions within that matrix is hacky-ish, I guess. Yeah, I think I think the key is sort of the, you know, if the sort of do-it-yourself aspect of, you know, just going in and, and making a solution um, and doing that solution because you understand how things work. So you can, you know, connect those dots and and uh, make that paperclip and uh, apple core into a bomb or whatever it was. Although sure. the guy would probably not make a bomb. Just <laughs> disarm a bomb. <clears throat> you can blow up the legal system, uh, not not with explosions, but with creative solutions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, fortunately, the NSA can't listen to this uh, recording this week, apparently. So. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, this week we're probably good, but yeah. you know, who knows when this uh, when this goes out live? You know, it'll live there on a server somewhere. That's right. Um, so you've said that you're just starting to get involved in the formal legal hacking community. Is that the the actual legalhackers.org formal community or something else? Yeah, so it's the, the legalhackers.org and uh, a bunch of different meetups that have sprung up around the country with that moniker mm-hmm. um, under legal hackers. And sort of legalhackers.org has sort of uh, collected uh, a bunch of different meetups in different localities and sort of points you to all of them. And, and a lot of times they share... Uh, people um, and a little bit of history. Um, but yeah, we're just trying to get um, some legal hacking groups together here in Boston area, which is where I'm based. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a legal hackers, Boston, Cambridge, um, which is run by uh, a solo practitioner, um, uh, Bill Palin. Um, and he's had a couple of meetings. Um, we're trying to start a, a legal hacking uh, group for all of Massachusetts uh, so that we don't uh, forget our people out west of Boston. Um, and that's going to be a more sort of hands-on one. And I'm, I'm doing that along with uh, some, uh, a couple of people who are still trying to tack everyone down, but uh, a friend of mine from the Media Lab and uh, a friend of his from somewhere else. And so we're, we're really sort of at the nascent stage of sort of trying to get the communities together and figure out what projects and problems we want to work on. And then also what skills we have, because uh, that will determine what we can work on. So uh, who comes to the meetups that you've been to so far? So the, the, the um, Boston-Cambridge meetups, which are the only ones that have sort of had uh, sessions yet, uh, were a mixture of sort of tech folks and attorneys. Um, a lot of people there just because they're curious. Um, they, you know, they see the name Legal Hackers and they want to know what's up with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, you know... Uh, a good deal of um, people from the tech community who might work at a you know startup in the area that does something quasi legal, um, and so they're sort of interested. Thing this is you know sort of a, an overlap with what they do, um, and then just people who are there's a big sort of sense the legal hacking as a as a group sort of tries to pile on this idea of sort of uh, civic hacking. Mm-hmm. which is the idea that, you know, you have problems out in the world and that, you know, some people plant trees on the weekend uh, as their, you know, volunteer work. But if you know how to code, then um, maybe you should code during the weekend to help out your community. And so sort of tapping into that sense is something that, uh, that I think the legal hackers groups try to do and to some extent uh, attract. 
And maybe that's the piece that I've seen the most. One of the questions that I had, and Aaron and I have discussed in one of our previous podcasts, is, you know, okay, so what does this all mean for solo and small firm lawyers? Is it is there a benefit to solo and small firm lawyers coming out of these hacking groups and projects? Um, is it something that solo smalls ought to get involved in and learn to code and participate? Or, you know, what? It, how does that intersect with what solo and small firm lawyers are worried about and concerned with and doing? So I think a lot of that depends upon your community. Um, that is the sort of community of legal hackers that may or may not exist. And uh, the great thing is if it doesn't exist, you can sort of set the agenda. Um, one of the things I see uh, for solo and uh, small firm practice that could be helpful is one of the things we're dealing with as an agency at the committee is we're finding ourselves sort of a, there's a market failure in some of the tools that we would like to have available to us. So we're a very large agency. We cover a lot of different practice areas. Um, and geographically, we're over the entire Commonwealth. Um, so if we want a tool um, that does sort of say case management or some aspect of case management, um, we can find solutions for, you know, off-the-shelf solutions or, you know, um, customized solutions from contractors, but none of them are available at a price point that we can afford because our price point is zero. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, that, that's something we share with, uh, with a lot of solo practitioners. And so what we're trying to do is build a lot of those tools in-house or try to find common cause with other similarly situated folks. So um, the work that I've been doing at the committee um, sort of has two sides to it. Um, one, um, sort of using the data we have and leveraging that for the benefit of our clients. But another big part of that is putting tools in place um, that very often end up having benefits for our agency inefficiencies. So, you know, I want to, as a data scientist, get all our data in a place where at the end of the day, I can easily just go in and play with that data and, and find answers to interesting questions. But to make that happen, we have to get the data in. And so often the, the tools that we build to get data into something um, also make our workflow a lot more efficient. Um, and so that's something that I think solo practitioners uh, might be interested in. And the reason I went down this line is because all the work we're doing, we're open sourcing. So if there are tools that we're working on, uh, you know, that would be useful to solo practitioners, they can supplement the, the work we've done or just take what we've been doing and use it. So, um, so one question, and then I want to hear more about what you're doing, because that seems like a good segue, and maybe I'll ruin it by asking this question, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so, um, so I used to use Linux, and um, Linux is open source, free and open source operating system. And, you know, as a consequence of using that, I use lots of other free and open source software, and I still do. And one of the things that always gets thrown out there is, you know, you know, you're free to modify it, and you can Im help improve it and all that kind of stuff. And I, that always just felt kind of meaningless to me, because I, I don't actually have the ability to modify it. I can't actually help improve it. Um, it's I'm using it in the same way that I would if I were paying for it, I'm just getting it for free. Um, so, I mean, how, realistically, knowing that most lawyers um, don't even know how to operate a scanner, much less code, code a line of <laughs> software, um, how, much, how much can they really give back to something like that? Well, so, you know, a lot of the problems with... Uh, so, first of all, I want to say that 
I, I think I just opened up like a giant open source conversation, yeah. but <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll we'll try to try to uh, see if we can wrangle it in there. Um, the the first thing I would say is that attorneys are, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to get the best outcome for our clients, and the tools that we use to do that. If we sort of think about what is the nitty gritty of our work, we're information workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we move information around, and we, you know, we we deal with information as our sort of main, our main, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what we, I don't know, I got to think of a better way to put the metaphor, but information is what we do. Right? Yeah. So we're information workers. And the key thing is that we should have a say in our tools, right? So it doesn't mean that we have to build every one of our tools um, ourselves, um, but we should be thinking seriously about the tools that we use and, what open source allows is an ability to interact with the people who are building those tools, either as becoming one of the developers yourself or helping to speak to those people who are developing them in a way that allows you to sort of take ownership of those tools and make them better. Um, so maybe if you're not going to code, there's not, you know, you're not going to go and, and build the tool, but if there's a, a, a set of legal hackers who are working on something and they, they maybe have a bunch of coders who understand how to build things but don't know what problems to work on, then, um, then that's where you might have, as an attorney, some good insight and something that would be useful. Gotcha. So, um, and I, you know, I think I agree with all of that. I think convincing lawyers to go down that road is maybe a little different. But um, t- tell us some of the things that you're working on. I, I've, I've written about a couple of things that you talk, told me about when we met. Um, and showed off um, the Q&A markup is such a cool tool for um, letting, making it easy to put uh, automated question and answer uh, logic onto a website. Um, and I think you're also telling me about automating some documents um, mm-hmm. at, at the, I'm, I'm just never going to remember the, the formal <laughs> name. So I'm just going to say <laughs> yeah. at the, at the public defender's office. Um, but I, you, you just sent me an email about a really cool project you're in where uh, a state chemist who falsified drug tests uh, provided an opportunity for you to flex your hacker muscles. Oh yeah. So this is a, a very interesting sort of intellectual problem and very important for, uh, for thousands of, of, of citizens of the Commonwealth. So uh, the backstory is that a few years ago, uh, there was a, a chemist at one of the straight, state drug labs who um, was found to be falsifying um, her reports. So uh, at some point, the Commonwealth would send uh, a sample up to the lab uh, for them to test so that they could come back and uh, say, yes, this either is or is not that substance, and so they could get a plea or a conviction. And she was uh, falsifying those reports. So instead of actually testing things, she was just saying that they were drugs when it wasn't clear whether or not they were or weren't. And very importantly, she was doing things like saying, you know, this was 17 grams as opposed to 14 grams, which ends up being very, Hmm. very important for the the defendant. So uh, basically, she, this, this came to light, um, and, uh, and so we got to work to try to figure out how can we help all of these people whose cases were tainted um, by her work. And so it's, it's three years after the scandal came to light, and we still actually don't have an entire accounting of all of the parties who might have been affected, um, which is, is kind of, you know... Uh, it's very disappointing. <laughs> um, 
And the reason why we don't have a list is because no one could just sit down and say, give me a list of every case that this person worked on, at least not in an easy way. The data exists, but uh, they're all in pieces of paper and folders throughout the Commonwealth. So the state wasn't able to do a query. We weren't able to do a query. The, the DAs weren't able to do a query. No one could just say, give me a list. And um, so what they did is they created a list, which um, they being the, the drug lab, uh, created a list of all of the cases where they thought she was involved. And the way they created this list was by looking at the single sheet of paper in the chain of custody for these samples. And that piece of paper had a spot on it where the, this is the piece of paper, something called the drug receipt. The police department would send it up along with the sample to the lab. It would have on it um, the incident number and a space to put in the defendant or defendant's names. And they just took the names off of that sheet uh, anytime they saw the chemist as either the primary or secondary on there and put it in a giant Excel spreadsheet and said, there we go, those are the names of all the people who were affected. No date of birth, no docket number, just uh, John Smith. And you're entirely and relying on the chemist who turned out to be a liar. Well, we, it, this is relying upon the, the paperwork, so we're hoping that uh, at least <laughs> she uh, signed off on the ones that she was working on. Um, and so, yeah, so we get this document, um, and it has you know 40,000 some odd names on it. And for a long time, many people have presumed this has sort of been the the master list off of which people have worked. Um, and our attorneys who are working on this case had this interesting question. They're like, well, you know, what happens if there are, are more defendants' names than can fit on that sheet of paper? Did, did they write them all down? Did they always write down if there was more than one? You know, we have this feeling that, that maybe this methodology doesn't capture everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, this was something that they had voiced as a concern for some time, but never really gained any traction. And then uh, a couple months ago, um, they asked if I'd look at the, the data that they had. Um, and this was prompted by the fact that uh, some of the DAs in the case had provided some more data, had provided some docket numbers, actually, to go along with some of the names to help us actually track down these individuals. And um, what we were able to do is we were able to use the data we had here at the committee. In uh, Massachusetts, we handle public defense that's sort of a there are staff attorneys who can be assigned as a public defender, or we contract out to attorneys um, to work on other cases. And so the, our staff attorneys only handle, at this point, about 25% of the cases. It was less back then. Um, so that means that we have uh, staff attorneys who handle a small amount of these, and then contract attorneys who handle the, a larger amount. But we had good data for our staff attorneys, because there are internal attorneys, and we had lists of co-defendants in cases for our clients. So basically what uh, we did is we took this master list and we said, hey, look at the names on that list. Do we have any clients with those names out of the right courts for the right dates? And we got a list of those. And then we said, okay, well, for those clients, what were the names of their co-defendants? And we got a list of those. And we said, okay, well, are those names on that master list? And if that master list is in fact includes everyone, we'd expect to see all those names on there. We did not see all of those names out there. Um, and so we were able to establish that this list, which had been assumed to be complete, was in fact incomplete. And so right now we're trying to figure out how incomplete. We know it's somewhere between some non-zero number and 10,000 individuals. Um, it's probably a lot closer to several hundred individuals. Hmm. 
but uh, this is now where we're at, and it'll be very interesting to see moving forward um, how how everyone responds to this and whether or not we can can get a better list. I mean, it seems like uh, you know you've got layers of problems there from from the fact that the legal the court system's database is essentially a bunch of file cabinets still. Yeah. Um, which is true all over the place. I mean, uh, you know, I've often wondered with companies like Fastcase and um, uh, Lex Machina, like how much more could they get done if they didn't spend all of their time figuring out how to turn bad PDFs and printed paper <laughs> into data? Um, so that's that's part, you know, the preliminary problem that we've got across the legal system is digitizing and creating structured data out of paper. Yeah. But... Um, but then you've got the clever solution to trying to figure out if the data you actually have is worth anything. So yeah, and what I what I'd really love to do is is help lay the groundwork so that the next time something like this comes up, um, we're not taking you know three years to be asking the question of do we have all the names or how do we get the names, um, but we can respond more quickly and then ideally we can eventually be proactive about this. So this chemist had a throughput that was three times that of her colleagues because she was not actually taking the time to do the real test. And that, that should have been a red flag and someone should have noticed. Mm-hmm. And if we are keep, if we're entering our data in near real time, um, we should be able to keep an eye on those sort of things and, and, and send up a flag to say, hey, let's look at this before it grows out of, um, out of hand and at the point now where it's affecting tens of thousands of members of the Commonwealth. Well, right, because if you've got the data, that should be a two-second inquiry, or, or yeah. you might even just automate it um, to, to look for things that are weird, um, which, you know, it's, it's when, I, when I see some clever new startup who is applying machine learning to legal documents, it always looks totally bland because we're used to doing that all over the place. But yeah. but um, making that happen in legal the legal world is kind of transformative. It's still it's like ten or fifteen years ago when Google first emerged and started indexing everything. It's we're just at the beginning of indexing law, really. Yeah, and there's some very interesting. You know, that's the that's the step we want to move to. Is you know, so uh, recently um, I had the pleasure of being over at a, a big data conference over in MIT, um, where there were a lot of people talking about using machine learning to, to look at signals in electronic medical records. And, you know, I had all these wonderful moments where I realized, hey, you know, this, you know that little doctor's note is just like the scribbled note on our run sheets that our attorneys do. Um, and, you know, so I think, uh, you know, as far as implementation, um, uh, electronic medical records has, you know, several years on, on the law, but, uh, you know, they've, uh, they've, they've sparked some ideas, and I think there's some interesting things that can come from that. It seems to me, because uh, you've also mentioned that you're, you know, doing uh, some document automation as a way to, uh, or maybe maybe that's in the department that you're no longer with, but, you know, speeding up the process of opening and closing files and things like that. And part of me wonders, like, how much of, how much of the work that we need really tech-savvy, legal hackerish sorts of people to do is, you can already do. Like, it, it's not, it's not that... It doesn't need to be hacked. It just needs somebody to, to make it happen. Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a lot of potential there. And that, this is something where, you know, I'd, I'd say to your listeners, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that people get excited about when they hear about, you know, sort of new tech and law, you know, all this document assembly stuff is stuff that you could do with a, a, a smart mail merge in Word. Yeah. Right? So um, just thinking, 
and this goes back to understanding your tools and how to use them. And, you know, so one of the, you know, big things we're doing is just linking up uh, mail, uh, mail, uh, mail merge in Word with our existing case management system, which is, you know, a SQL database. Um, and, you know, that, that allows us to, to very quickly be able to do some document automation that didn't require us to, to hire a big outside consultant, didn't require us to, to buy some new software. It was just doing a hack you know, making mm-hmm. use of the tools we had um, to do something that, in the end, is going to you know save us lots of time. So maybe uh, you know, m- maybe part of the answer to what does this all mean for solo and small firm lawyers is um, to stop waiting around for somebody else to solve your problems and start start learning how to solve them for yourself and, and how to identify them in the first place, right? I mean, some of the problems that, that we've talked about already, the, the actual, the bigger part of the problem was identifying it and figure out, figuring out what the problem was, I think. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of attorneys already know what their point, pain points are, right? Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the fact that they don't know what the, the realm of the possible looks like in the, the world of solutions. Yeah. So one of the great, the great things that, you know, sort of legal hacking, I think, hopefully will develop into. And, you know, this is each, every place I've seen a, a group sort of has their own flavor, but there's a, there's this sort of bridging the, the worlds between attorneys and coders, um, because often what we're talking about is doing some type of technical solution. And I think, you know, there's a lot you can do to encourage coders to be interested because you say, Here, here's stuff that's, you know, important and useful to society. Um, but there's also... Um, you know, there's an ability for attorneys to teach themselves how to use a lot of these tools rather easily um, because there aren't the barriers to learning how to code. Um, you know, it's, it's much easier to teach an attorney uh, how to code than, say, to teach a coder the U.S. code. I don't know. That, that, that maybe that's a last line. Maybe some people laugh at that one. But, um, no, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the point is it's a much smaller lift to learn how to, to do uh, stuff with with coding, in large part because once you know enough nomenclature to know what the questions are to ask, you know, I want to do document assembly, okay, so that's something, oh, merge, okay, data field, and you start to know, okay, well, I need to know about databases, okay, well, let me learn a little bit about databases. Once you have the right magic words to ask questions about, you just go to Google, and uh, you do a search and say, how do I do this? And then, you know, you find a nice stack overflow, um, which is a a place where a bunch of people will ask questions and answer them. Um, you can find a lot of solutions there, and you can just sort of teach yourself stuff. So I was involved in a, um, a uh, the ABA's first hackathon last year, and on my team it was myself, another uh, attorney coder, um, and a, a student from MIT who had come up because he was interested in what we were doing. Um, but there, uh, you know, you had two attorneys who had taught themselves how to code, um, albeit the, we had a, a different background than, than uh, a lot of other attorneys. But uh, it's something that's very possible once you, you, know, once you decide that you want to try. You know, I, um, David Zvenyach, am I saying that right? Do you know? Yeah, David Zvenyach. Yeah, he was okay. one of the, my team members, yeah. Yeah, so he, uh, he, he's, a, he's a DC guy um, and who he calls himself a bureaucracy hacker. Uh, which is sort of the same thing, but working for the government. But um, he is the one who wrote, I think, that really cool um, thing that tells you when Supreme Court opinions have been changed. Yes. Isn't, isn't that his little tool? Yeah, that's, that's the one of his little babies. And uh, and that's, that's a fun one. It just, you know, he looks and sees 
when uh, there's a, a new publication of the opinion, and is it different than the first publication mm-hmm. uh, before the official publication goes out? So online publication. Yeah, it's super cool little tool. But but uh, we sort of connected over Twitter, and he sat down with me over Skype, and you know I I've done just a a little bit of coding, you know, sort of because I've done some web development stuff, but. But I really, I had a web app in mind that I wanted to build, and and he came. He was like, "I'll I'll show you the basics," and and he showed me how to, you know, hook up a database and start populating the database. And you know, I I I haven't had time to get back to that and actually apply what he showed me. But um, but I've done a little bit of it, and just seeing just seeing that, like even if I don't follow up with it, I started realizing how the internet is put together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you 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 just start to get. I, I see how if I spent a lot more time on this, I could eventually build Gmail. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, Dave taught himself to code, uh, uh, you know, and people always ask him, when does he have time to do stuff? You know, his, his mm-hmm. family. And I think he just doesn't sleep. He just does it after people go to bed. So <laughs> Sleep's a waste uh, of time. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he actually has a, a website, codingforlawyers.com, mm-hmm. um, which talks you through some of, uh, some of the stuff you'd want to know if you were to, to go about learning to code. Although one of the, the things I've worked on, which um, I think if any of your listeners are interested in, you know, a place to start would be the, the Q&A markup language. Mm-hmm. So this is the tool that um, we built in-house to solve a very specific problem, which was that we were revamping our website. And as I explained at the top of the show, we, we do a lot more than just adult criminal defense. And so it didn't make sense for our clients, if they came to our website, they weren't going to know the difference between our youth advocacy division and our child and family law division. Um, and it didn't seem reasonable to expect that they had to read a history about all of our divisions before they knew where to go on the website. So we said, well, what would we do if someone just walked in or someone called us? Well, we'd, we'd ask them a bunch of questions. We'd say, okay, well, what's going on with you? Oh, okay, you're, you're under eight, you're 18 uh, or younger and you're charged with crime. You're going to talk to our youth advocacy division. And so we wanted to have a tool that would allow sort of this interactive question and answer to take place. Uh, but we needed some to be something that we could then easily go back and edit because we knew as a bunch of attorneys we were going to fixate on exactly what questions we asked and, you know, how we phrased them. And, you know, if you answer this, where are we going to send you? We didn't want to build something just once and then have to bring in a bunch of coders to change it every time we wanted to make a tweak. And so we built this language, which really was built for attor- with attorneys in mind, which just allows you to write out, if you have a decision tree, you can just translate that uh, very easily into an interactive Q&A session that can then send people to where they need to get information or to collect information and compile that th- together into a simple document. And uh, that's at qnamarkup.org. And I'll, and, uh, and I'll definitely link to that and, um, and other things in the show notes for sure. Yeah, and since we're, you know, it was built here at the committee uh, on, you know, state time, so uh, it's available, you know, back out to the to the citizens. I um, mean, you know, those of you who aren't in Massachusetts will, you know, just enjoy free riding on, on the taxpayer <laughs> of Massachusetts. Um, so it's out there. It's uh, open source, uh, available for anyone to use. Um, or if they'd like to, they can, you know, look under the hood and, and change it and adapt it and, and hopefully add to it. And uh, we're interested in it. There's a couple of people who are interested in doing some work for us that might add some functionality, um, make a translation tool perhaps for HJ author so you can, you know, move stuff back and forth between Q&A and that. And, uh, and yeah, that's a, that's a really simple place where an attorney can sit down and they can just start playing with sort of very light sort of pseudo code 
And my experience is and, that and logic, a lot of, maybe more importantly. Yeah, the logic more, uh, more importantly. What's nice is you can write something, you hit a button, and you see your computer do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a very uh, you know very sort of seductive thing. Well, it's like and yeah, it's like the first time I built a website or something was magical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except now it's and, and you know this is at one level beyond that because you know interactive, so you know you can mm-hmm. give it to someone and they can, you know you give it to someone and then it it responds back. I remember as a as a kid sitting down uh, with an Apple IIe and, and writing basic programs where you know I would you know type in hello, it would type you know hi and ask me questions back and forth, and it was just you know spent hours doing it and. Uh, it sort of got me hooked, and my experience is that if you, you play around, you, hopefully, you'll get hooked, and then you know, then you'll go over and read David Zvinich's uh, Coding for Lawyers, and then you'll say, oh, well, wait a second, everyone keeps talking about this JavaScript stuff. Okay, well, I'm going to learn some of that, and and then you know, you just won't be able to put it down. Well, and I I think I'm, I think I want to start recommending to lawyers to go complete a course at Code Academy. Yeah. Or one of the other online. Uh, learning courses. This is this is where you can you can go to Code Academy and you can take a course on JavaScript. And that course is, I think, you know, I think that the JavaScript one, the basic JavaScript, is like about a four-hour commitment. And it will teach you the basics of coding variables and if-then statements and um, just very basic stuff in a very friendly, coached environment. It's free. Um, and it's the kind of thing where once you walk through that, like I was saying about my experience with David, you'll you'll start to open up to what coding is. It won't be as mysterious to you once you've done it. So yeah, and I mean the the, the truth is the the difference between a coder and a lawyer is, is not that much. Where you know both are are writing down words with uh, you know in some sort of in reference to some sort of formalism with the expectation that if they craft the words just right, they'll get the result they want. Yeah, if you, um, I mean, it, drafting a complex contract and creating a, a simple app is pretty much the same thing. Yeah, just different different inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. And much syntax, more specific. Yeah, much more specific syntax. But, but com- compilers and, and, and uh, computers are just as picky as, you know, that most picky uh, uh, law journal editor you had on citations. You know, it's it cares if you put a period or as one one or two spaces after, and it probably won't miss it if you like your your editor might. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it'll it'll be really picky. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so do you come down on the side of saying that lawyers ought to learn to code, or or at least do, get, be exposed to it and and dip their toes in the water? I think it's useful. I think it, it I think it really depends a lot upon what your role is. Um. You know, I can imagine. And I think it's more important if you're a solo practitioner because you're having to look at all aspects of your practice. Um, you know, if you're if you're very narrowly focused in a in a big firm that's you know has all, you know all their workflows figured out, then maybe there's not as much of a need. Although if you actually do, then you'll probably they'll think you're magic and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that could be good for your career. But if you know if you're a solo practitioner, you know you've got to do it because no one else is gonna. I think. And I think that it's it's best to, you know, it's clear, I think, to everyone that, you know, things are changing. And I think it's best if you can get out in front of that. Um, when you're adding, you new, you're adding new tools to your toolbox, the next time you get a massive box of documents, um, you may think of different ways to pull the information out of those documents without just hiring a bunch of associates to pour over them. Yeah. Uh, David Zavinich's first chapter in, um, in a coding for 
lawyers is on regular expressions, which is sort of, as I described it to, we had a set of interns uh, here last year uh, that were law students. So as I described it to them, it's sort of like uh, find and replace on steroids. So instead of just searching for individual exact patterns, you can say, show me every instance of, you know, three numbers followed by a space followed by these two letters. Mm-hmm. You know, immediately you start to think of citations. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zavinich has a really great walkthrough on that. And you get to the point where I had my law students going through some old documents, and there had been some links on the documents, which used to link to our um, to the state's old repository of, of some information, and they, they changed their website. And so all of those links got broken. And I said, and this, this is sort of incidental to, to what they were doing. They were doing something else, but I said, when you go through, just make sure all the links work, I just said as an offhanded comment. But we had taught them regular expressions a couple weeks earlier. And uh, one, of the, one of the interns came back and said, you know what, instead of going through and just finding each of those broken links and breaking them and, and fixing them, I realized they were all broken in the same way, and I used regular expressions to just go through, find them all, and replace them with the new syntax. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, was, awesome. it was a moment that made a teacher proud. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the kind of that's that's what you can do when you have additional tools in your toolbox. So, yeah. uh, any any thoughts you want to leave us with when it comes to legal hacking and and how solo and small firm lawyers might be able to get involved? So I'd say you know go to Meetup, uh, you know check out and see if there are any or, or you know legalhackers.org, um, and. Go and check out and see if there are any local groups. If not, see if you can get a couple of people together, create a meetup. Um, you also might want to uh, check out um, uh, Code for America. They have um, they have meetups often that they'll run as well if, they, if they've been a um, if they've been in a municipality. Um, and you know, just reach out and try to find people who are interested. And you know, a great you know one of the things that that we've had a lot of. Um, industry as a government agency had a lot of success with is reaching out to local academic institutions, right? So if you don't have the talent, uh, the sort of tech skilled, you know, talk to your local college and say, well, you know, what are your, you know, your engineering students interested in working on any projects, you know, with real world uh, application? Because, you know, that can be a win-win for, for both sides. And so, but it's about building those, those communities and finding those people who are interested. So I'd say, you know, just start looking. What if you're a solo practitioner who, or a small firm lawyer who has a problem and they think there's a technical solution to it, um, but they they aren't capable or competent to do it themselves? How could they how could they find somebody and connect with somebody who might be able to craft a solution for that? Yeah. So for that, you know, you might want to try going to some of these meetups and trying to meet the people who are working on these things. But the, you know, first thing I'd say is I'd sort of echo your earlier comment. I'd say take a you know, take four hours and sit down with you know a uh, you know General Assembly or Code Academy or or something and and see if if this is you know if coding is not something that that you might be able to do yourself because it's actually you know it's not that hard uh, it's not rocket science um, it's just you know really really picky syntax and you just might need somebody to point you in the right direction every once yeah, in a while. Yeah, just might need someone to right, point you in the right direction. And you know, the online the online community is very helpful too. Once you can start asking the right questions, you know, you can actually find people to to ask them. And, and there are a lot of people who are willing to help. Um, so I'd say first things first. You know, you know, if you know anyone who might be in, you know, because well, this is a very important point. Don't go out there with a problem trying to find someone and then think you have a solution and say 
find someone and say, oh, can you fix this for me? Mm-hmm. If you're going to entice people with technical skills to work on a project with you, you need to actually have them work on a project with you. You need to partner with them. Well, right. So I translate that to, I have a legal problem and will you do it for me for free? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would not, you know, if, if everyone, yes, we all know that. Mm-hmm. So you, you want to say, this, there's this interesting problem. I can't quite figure out how to do it, but I think you might have something to offer. And if you help me with this, you know, here's all the benefits to society and, and happiness and, or, you know, or, or, you know, here we're going to start our own business or whatever it is it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But it has to be some partnership um, because, yeah, no one likes it when, you know, someone just calls and say, oh, you're the attorney in the family. Can you do this for me? Mm-hmm. Um, you want to say, oh, this is interesting. You might be able to find somebody who is willing to get paid to fix the problem, but um, but if you if if it is a problem that is shared among many lawyers and there is a solution that you can present to the world and solve that problem, that's a pretty compelling problem for a hacker to tackle. I think. Yeah. So. And then and then when they say no, that's not really exciting to me. That's so simple. A trained monkey could do it. Then you say, wait a second, I'm smarter than a trained monkey. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> yeah, just point me in the right direction. Cool. So, um, so we talked a little bit about legal hacking and how to get involved. Um, and uh, uh, boy, that was that's fun. I, I really like hearing about the stuff that you guys are doing out in Massachusetts, and you particular are doing those. Are it's cool to hear that um, you're able to do that within the some would say confines of a government gig, and. Um, and we think lawyers ought to expose themselves to code and maybe get involved in the legal hacker movement. Here, here. All right. Thanks so much for being with us today, David. And well, thank uh, you. We, we hope you might come back and join us again sometime. All right. Well, thank you. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years, and I regularly got compliments from callers, clients, potential clients, opposing counsel about the great receptionists from Ruby. Um, But I also loved being a Ruby customer because of the way they treated me. So quick story about why that is. When my first daughter was born, um, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone and I updated my status saying, hold my calls for 48 hours. Um, and I said that I was in the hospital <laughs> with giving birth to my daughter. My wife was giving birth to my daughter. Um, and um, I didn't think anything more of it. They held my calls. It all went smoothly. And when I got back to my office a few days later, there was a beautiful little care package waiting for me from Ruby. Um, whoever had fielded that status update saw that I was in the hospital um, for the birth of my daughter, and they sent you know a rattle and a onesie and and a, a bib and a couple some really nice things. It wasn't Ruby branded. It was just a really nice care package for the baby, and it was this really touching thing. And it was so touching that I'm still telling people about it years later. Um, Ruby still answers the phones for lawyerist, and I have to say that we've gotten great service from them throughout this time. I, I don't get care packages anymore, obviously, because I'm not having kids anymore, but it's just been a wonderful experience. So I think you should give it a try. And since Ruby will answer your phones for free for 14 days uh, during the trial period, you've really got nothing to lose. So uh, I think you should go get started. And you can do that by going to callruby.com lawyerist. And if you do, Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. 
Subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.